Amen. What a great thing to sing of our rock, our solid rock, our God and our Savior. I don't really know where to tell you to turn in your Bibles today. I'm opening mine, but we'll be all over the place in Genesis because it is our, our final study of the book of Genesis. On uh, April 15, 2018, we started this journey. That's two years and ten months ago. And we're now um, concluding it. And so this is the end of the beginning, the end of the book of Genesis and all that God has for us there. Um, now, I, I will say, even though this is the end of our series on Genesis, this certainly isn't the last time we'll talk about Genesis, right? Like, we're, we're going to go to other books of the Bible. We're going to do this Behold series. We might do Exodus after this. I don't know. Um, but we're going to be talking back <laughs> about Genesis all the time. And I've come to realize, as I've been studying, as I've been preparing uh, these sermons for the last almost three years, that I, I really believe that the book of Genesis that we've been studying is the most important book in the whole Old Testament. It may be a bold claim, I don't know, uh, but that's how I feel. I feel like it's the most important uh, book of the Old Testament. And the, the reason that, that I believe that, and I've come to believe that, is it helps us to understand the, the rest of what the whole Bible is talking about. Like, we wouldn't understand Exodus. We wouldn't understand, you know, all these books in between the prophets. We wouldn't understand even uh, when the New Testament comes, what's going on. You know, I mean, you think about just some basic questions that you might have. If you were a, a new person, you opened the Bible, uh, just opened it right in the middle or something, and you're like, okay, who are the Israelites? You know, okay, well, why does God seem to be so for these people called the Israelites? Why are they making sacrifices? You know, why are they killing animals? What's that all about? What are these promises that they're clinging to? You know, what is their, their hope? And then ultimately, who is this Jesus that comes on the scene later? Like, it just, none of that would make any sense, I don't believe, if we didn't have the book of Genesis to lay the foundation and so that's true biblically. It helps us to understand the Bible, but I've also come to realize it helps us to understand all of life. All of life, everything that, that's going on around us, this world that we live in, this, these things we do day in, day out, you can't really understand those without Genesis, without understanding what happened uh, during this time period that Genesis covered. I mean, you think about things like this. Where did I come from? That's a pretty big question. Where did anything come from? <laughs> How come there is something rather than nothing? And then we might wonder, well, what went wrong with this something? What went wrong with me? Why is this world so messed up most of the time? You might wonder, what hope do I have in this world? And how am I supposed to live while I wait for that hope? to be fulfilled. And so Genesis answers those questions, I believe, or at least lays the foundation for us understanding those questions. What is the Bible talking about? What is life about? And so knowing that Genesis is such an important book for us, I, I honestly struggled some this week and, and the, the week before knowing what I was going to talk about uh, this Sunday. Because, I, you know, I thought about, okay, this is a super important book, to me the most important book in the Old Testament, and there's so many important things that it teaches us, so what should I talk about? Should I, you know, trace the names of God that are used in Genesis and what they tell us about his character? 
Should I trace the different covenants that are given throughout the book of Genesis and how those play out in the rest of the Bible? Should I trace the different main characters and showing how they all tie together? Those are all important things and would have been worthwhile, but what I finally landed on and thought would be most helpful is I want to trace some of the main theological uh, realities, theological and practical realities that are first taught to us in the book of Genesis. And so we'll be basically answering the question, what is the story of Genesis about? What is, what is this book of Genesis about? What are the main themes, the main uh, realities that God would have us learn from it? And so I'm going to do my best on that. There's, there's a lot that Genesis teaches us, uh, but I'm just going to draw up for us today four different uh, main theological and practical realities that are introduced to us in the book of Genesis. And um, I, I think it, if we can get these things down, it really will help us to make sense of so much of life and give us so much hope and so much direction. So I hope that we can all see these things as we study in this review of these 50 chapters today. So let's pray together and ask God to help us in that task. Father God, I thank you that you're a God who is not silent, that you have spoken to us in your word. We understand that you have spoken to us in creation, where you've revealed something, some truths to us in creation. But in your word, God, you, you've explained. You've explained, you've, you've shown what, what truth is. You've explained who we are. We've, you've explained who you are. You've explained what's happened in this world and what you are doing about it. And so God, we thank you for being a God who speaks, who does not leave us on our own to try to figure things out. And God, we come to this book of Genesis today and we, we just pray that you'd give us insight that would help us to to study the Bible better and help us even to see all of our lives in a more clear picture because you have the most clear vantage point, the most clear perspective on all of life and you have, and you have shared that perspective with us, Lord. So help us to have that perspective. Help us to, to see you for who you are and to worship you because of it. I pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. So what is the Genesis story about? What are the main theological and practical themes that the book of Genesis teaches us? So that's what we're going to go through. We've got four uh, main theological and practical themes that I want to talk about. And they'll each have two aspects to them. But we'll break them down. So number one is this. Genesis is a story of a creator and creation. Genesis is a story of a creator and creation. Genesis 1.1, where all this began, Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God, that's creator, okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is creation. All that is in the heavens all that is in the skies, all that is in the spiritual realms, and the earth. 
all these material things that we see. That is what Genesis is a story about. It is a story of a creator and creation. And the first thing that we recognize when we read just a few words into the book of Genesis is that God exists. God always existed. God brought this beginning about. In the beginning, God. And God, this this God, this one and only God, chose to create. And he created everything. And this teaches us uh, a few things that I kind of uh, want to show you real quickly. The first thing that I think we can learn is our, our relationship with God, our, our status, our uh, place in this world under God is, is what we learn. And, and what we find is that, first, God is infinitely superior to creation. The Creator is infinitely superior to creation. You cannot miss that in Genesis 1. Just the, the Genesis 1, the, the first chapter of the Bible. You cannot miss that God is infinitely superior to that which he has created. So you have a God who creates everything. Just think about things. You got rocks, sand, oceans, mountains. You've got animals, giraffes, mice. You've got people, all our intricacies. You've got the whole universe, light years, light years. That is, I mean, I don't even know how to put that into miles. That's why we speak in light years of how big our universe is, how far even the the closest star, the sun, is, then how far the next closest star. I mean, it's absolutely massive. All of that this God, this creator, made. He is infinitely superior. And you say, well, what did he make it out of? You know, did he find some raw materials laying around? And he say, okay, I'll make this into a giraffe. I'll make this into a star. And, you know, just, no. This God created out of nothing. Ex nihilo is, is the uh, Latin word for whatever reason we use Latin. Um, it, it, he created this out of nothing. So get this. You try to go make a rocking chair. I say, Sonny, I need you to make me a rocking chair. And you say, okay, well, um, do you want me to get the materials or you? No, 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 no. I want you to make it out of nothing. Well, our, our conversation ends pretty quickly. Um, you know, God made everything, everything out of nothing. You think, okay, well, did he labor over this for billions, millions, you you know, did he labor over this forever trying to build all these things? No. In Genesis 1, we see over and over again, God speaks, and that thing exists. God said, let there be light, and there was light. I mean, this is incredible. You could say the snap of your fingers, we kind of think of that way, but he didn't snap his fingers, he spoke, and there it was this is unbelievable that is a glorious god that is an infinitely superior god infinitely infinitely superior creator to the creation 
And that is what we see here, is that there's this amazing God who can create everything out of nothing and do it simply by speaking. The second thing we see about this God is that he gives purpose to creation. The creator gives purpose to the creation. We kind of could go back to the rocking chair example. If I, if I were to make a rocking chair, I would make it so that it functions in a certain way. I would give it a certain purpose. It is for people to sit on and to rock on in a certain way. Like that would be the, the, the purpose I put into it as the creator. And knowing God is infinitely superior to me and any craftsmanship I may have or any authority I may wield, God gives purpose to the creation. Again, you see in Genesis chapter 1 that God makes man in his image, male and female. He created them in his image. And that, that's the first purpose statement that we see uh, for, for humankind. And I'm actually zooming in specifically into humans when I talk about this purpose. All of creation, by the way, is meant to declare the glory of God. And again, that's why the universe is so big, and yet we only have uh, rational beings on one little ball within the universe known as the earth. All of that is to, to, to declare his glory. But then you have humans with a particular purpose, that we are made in his image. And I, I don't have time to go through it, but the idea of being an, in the image of God is that we are to behold the glory of God and to reflect the glory of God. We are like an image. We are like a mirror. We are like statues of God on this earth. And that is our purpose, to behold the glory, the greatness of God, and to reflect that on others around us. That is our purpose. That is what we are created for. Then we see shortly after God has Adam taking care of the garden. So he's, he's to work. He's to work this, this world that God has put him in. And then God makes out of the man a woman. And the two uh, become one flesh, having this loving relationship. And I would say that that's simply a pattern, not uh, of marriage, but of all relationships. That all relationships, the purpose of them is that we would love and encourage and help one another do what God has created us to do. So we're made in his image, beholding, reflecting, taking care of this garden, and made for loving, serving relationships with one another. And then the final thing we see, God is infinitely superior, God gives purpose to creation. The final thing we see is God is in authority over his creation. Again, it honestly should be pretty much just obvious to us that if this God creates the world out of nothing, speaks it into existence, and he gives purpose to that creation, then he is in authority over that creation. It's not that difficult. But God does, all through Genesis, give us uh, hints towards that. It makes it more explicit for us. It was God who told Adam to name the animals, right? So God gives him a task, tells him what to do. It was God who put him uh, over the garden to take care of it. It was God who told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. And it was God who gave them one rule of abstinence, one thing that they could not do. And I would say the reason they were given that one rule, the one thing they could not do, was to show that God is an authority over them, to make it explicit 
I can set boundaries over you. He is infinitely superior. He gives purpose, and he is in authority over. And again, that one command was, God says to to Adam, You may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so we recognize that, that when people... understand their proper place under God, creator, creation. When people understand their proper place, they all of a sudden have something superior to look to, something superior to, to give them awe, to give them joy, to give them life. They have purpose in this life to enjoy that glory and reflect that glory, to do loving relationships and work this earth. And we recognize that God is in good authority over us. He is our good lawgiver and boundary giver. I I hope you understand that it was not good for Adam and Eve to go against his authority. It was a loving, kind rule of abstinence he gave gave them. And by the way, you can look at the, the liberality that God gave them. He said, you may eat, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Every tree. But... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you, mi- you shall not eat. One little rule. One little rule. And so there we see our place in this world. Where did I come from? Where did everything come from? Where do I fit in to this world? We are mere creations of the infinitely superior, purpose-giving, authority creator God. That is what the book of Genesis teaches us. Well, you might be tempted to think at that point, okay, God is so great. He's so so awesome and perfect and glorious. Well, then why is this world so terrible all the time? Why are there wars? Why are there so-called natural disasters? Why are relationships difficult? Why is work difficult? Why does my body break down? Why do I eventually die if God is so impressive? That's a great question. Thankfully, Genesis answers that. Genesis is not only a story of creator and creation, it is a story of perfection and corruption. Genesis is a story of perfection and corruption. In Genesis 1, I'm not going to go through all of them, uh, but I'll, I'll just give you first there, Genesis 1, 4. Uh, we'll do 3 and 4. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Do you hear that? Uh, we don't have to go any further there on, on that particular one, because this happens, that's, that's, that's verse 4. That same thing it was good, it was good, it was good, happens in verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 25. And then when we have uh, humanity created in verse 31, it was very good. The capstone of his creation and all of it created that idea of very good, not just good, is like, okay, now it's complete. There's complete harmony, there's complete perfection on this earth, in this creation, And God calls all of this good, the good, infinitely perfect, holy being, says, this is good, I have created, I've created uh, light, I've created earth, I've created waters, I've created animals, fish, people, 
and all of it is good. It is perfect. So we need to understand that the, the creation God originally formed from the word of his mouth was perfect. It was perfect in harmony. It was perfect in peace. It had perfect potential to thrive. You say, I want to thrive. Yes, that's the way God made it. That, that every moment of your life would be thriving. You would be perfectly at peace with yourself. Do any of you struggle with yourself? You ever struggle not liking yourself? Not liking what you did, what you said? Or maybe you think too highly of yourself. And that causes problems as well. We were perfectly loving and serving one another. That is what God created Adam and Eve and joined them together to do, to perfectly love and serve one another. Not an angry word said, not an, not an undercutting word said, not a demeaning word said. Loving and serving one another. No selfishness. Wouldn't that be crazy if there were no selfishness in the relationships that you're involved in? I know everyone around me is so selfish. Now, I'm the problem too. Uh, but that, that's just what I'm pointing out. It was not that way. People were perfectly, people being Adam and Eve, perfectly interacting with creation. They had to work the earth, yes. But it was, it was joyful work. It was life-giving work. It wasn't laborious. They weren't getting blisters on their hands and having thorns tear their arm. They weren't ha having times that their, their work just wasn't happening the way they wanted it to. It was joyous work. And most importantly, most importantly, they were perfectly interacting with and enjoying God. The God who is infinitely superior, the God who gives purpose, and the God who is in good, helpful, loving authority over them. They had a relationship with him, an interaction. This beholding and seeing that amazing glory, being filled with life because of it, and reflecting that glory as image bearers. They were doing that perfectly. This truly was paradise, this truly was utopia, nirvana, whatever you want to call it. This was that paradise, this was perfection. That is what God created. So never doubt God's glory because of what you see around us, the, the trouble, the tumult that you see around us, because that was on us. Because that's what we see happen in chapter 3. Everything changes. Perfection is turned to corruption in chapter 3. And in chapter 2, we saw God give that one command. You can eat of anything, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. In Genesis 3, we can read it. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent, we understand him to be under the control of Satan. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, to Eve, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that there was and that there was to be desired and that the tree was to be desired to make 
one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Recognize what just happened right there. This was a mutiny, okay? This, this wasn't just like a, eh, we'll just do this one little, you know, one little sin. No, this was a mutiny against God. You will be like God. You can't trust God. He's not all that glorious. That's what Satan tried to tell her there. You will not surely die. God's just a liar. He just knows that you will be like him if you eat it, and you'll be filled with wisdom to know what's best for you. Do you, do you remember our first parts there on creation, or creator and creation? God is infinitely superior to all creation. God gives purpose, and God is good authority. This was a mutiny against all three of those points that we just learned. This was treason, rebellion against God. It's a statement that their creator is not infinitely superior. He does not give them meaning. They'll create their own meaning, thank you. And he is not in good authority. He's just trying to keep good from them. What was the fallout of that? This is known as the curse, kind of in theological circles. This is the curse of sin. Well, first we see that mankind is now at war with self. Remember, mankind was perfectly at peace with himself. Well, mankind is now at war with self. We see in Genesis 3, 7, the very next verse, Eve eats and Adam eats in verse 6, verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. <clears throat> in two, uh, the end of chapter 2, 25, it says, and the man and his woman were both naked and we're not ashamed. Now they've sinned, and now there's shame, there's guilt. They're not comfortable with themselves anymore. They want to cover themselves, to hide themselves. They're no longer at peace with themselves. There's a shame, guilt, self-hatred that creeps in. This is part of the curse of sin. Next, we see that mankind is at war with each other. Mankind was created to love and serve one another at perfect peace and harmony, upbuilding with one another. And now mankind is at war with one another. We see Adam, first thing when God comes up, he blames Eve. She made me do it. That's not service. That's not protection to her. That's using her as an excuse for his own sin. Then we see a part of the curse that God lays down explicitly. Uh, Genesis 3.16b your desire, he says to the wife, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There's this domination within uh, relationships now. People are now at war with one another, and we see that uh, war only grow. The very next generation, Cain and Abel, BFFs, right? They were best friends. <laughs> no, Cain kills Abel. People are at war with one another, and that continues all through Genesis, all through the Bible. Next, we see that man is at war with creation. Do you remember all the, these trees, the garden God put them in? It was all perfect. The, the, the trees, it produced food, life-giving food that they could partake and eat. And it was delicious, and all of creation, the weather, everything was just perfect for them, laid out for their thriving. Genesis 3, 17b to 19 God says, cursed is the ground because of you. 
in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. We are now at war with creation, fighting back the weeds, trying to keep ourselves out of the cool and the extreme heat, keep ourselves from these natural disasters, keep ourselves from the corruption of creation. In addition, we see that mankind is at war with Satan. Uh, Genesis 3.15, the first half says, uh, he say, he's saying this to Satan, to the serpent, I will put enmity, that's war, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. So while we are at war with one another, right? We're at war with each other. There's also a spiritual war constantly raging against us. That is, God's people under the threat, under the enmity of Satan's. Both spiritual and even those who are human followers of Satan, whether or not they realize it. There is this enmity. There's this war with Satan. And finally, and most importantly, once again, they are now at war with God. You say, at war with God. Remember First John says that whoever loves the world is at enmity with God. Whoever loves the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That's all of us. That's all of us. We all have those things. We are born with those things. We lust after things we should not. We, we have this, uh, um, this, this lust for the world, and we see it as, as greater than God, and the pride of life, I think I am greater than I should be. And all of that, John tells us, puts us at enmity with God. And of course, God, as we'll see in just a moment, it has to now wage war against us. But we see that even in Genesis chapter 3, after they sinned, at verse 8, so we've now gone through uh, all of 3 up to verse 8 here, and so we're picking up there. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Here we go. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to them, called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. Fast forward, God lays down the, the curse, what it will look like. Then Genesis 3, 24, he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, they're, they're, they're cast out of the garden. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. And while the garden was a real place, it was also emblematic. It was symbolic of a place of paradise in relationship with God. This was where God came down and tabernacled with them. This is where God's presence was dwelling, and they were cast out of that. Perfection, everything, set up for harmony, peace, thriving, corrupted, by sin, because of mankind's mutiny against God. What was peace became war, serenity was spoiled. And all of us, since Adam and Eve, are born under that same curse. We are born in rebellion to God. We are born at war with ourselves, at war with each other, at war with creation, at war with Satan, and at war with God. Romans 5.12 
It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And Genesis is basically, as we continue through, chronicling this curse, chronicling this depravity, chronicling this sin. Again, we see Cain kill Abel right there, right after that. Then we see uh, Lamech kill a man because he was, wasn't, he was like taunting him. We, we just see it go on and on and on throughout the rest of Genesis. All this sin, all this depravity, all this war. And if that were the end of the story, if that were the only aspect of the story, it would be a tragic one. This would just be labeled a tragedy, the book of Genesis. If that were the end of the story, life would have no joy, no purpose, no meaning, no peace, and no way to adore, enjoy, and reflect God the way we were created to. It would be tragic. But thankfully, that's not the end. Genesis is also a story of judgment and grace. It's a story of judgment and grace. That's number three if you're writing things down. Genesis is, yes, a story of God's judgment for sin, but it is also a story of God's grace towards sinners. We begin with that judgment, and Genesis is the first place that we see. I mean, think about this. Again, if, if you only had Genesis, if this were the first book you ever read, this would be where you first see the unwavering, unbending holiness and justice of God. God does not brush sin under the rug. He does not act like it is no big deal. God is holy. He is righteous altogether. And sin must be judged. And sin will be judged. And sin is judged even here in Genesis. I'll give you just a few examples. We already saw the curse. I mean, that, that, that's God's justice towards the world. Like, I created perfection, harmony, utopia for you. But now that you have turned against me, now that you have tried to put yourself in my place, it will all be a curse for you. In chapter 6, so now we're finally moving forward a little bit <laughs> after chapter 3. I guess we hit 4 with Cain and Abel already. But in chapter 6, we see that the world has grown so overwhelmingly wicked that God grieves that he ever made it in the first place and decides to wipe it all out. People are such sinners in such mutiny and rebellion against him and against one another that God says, I am going to wipe it all out. That is judgment. Everyone except for Noah and his family are killed in the flood. Genesis 6 through Genesis 9, we see that carry out. The, the Noah's family repopulates, they're fruitful and multiply. In chapter 11, we see that the, the world is, is well populated again, but they're all in one location, and they decide, hey, let's build a monument to our glory. We know that as the Tower of Babel. And so they work on building this, and there's much more we could say about that tower. It was also a very high tower, you know, maybe one that could outdo a flood. They're trying to outdo the justice of God. And so in that moment, God 
confuses their languages. In an instant, God confuses their languages. They all spoke together. They could work together. God confuses their languages and then spreads them all over the earth. This is the first time we see people spreading uh, instead of inhabiting all together in one locale. This is because of their evil, their unified evil. God brings down that judgment. In Genesis 19, we come to Sodom and Gomorrah. Nice place to raise a family. No, wicked, sinful cities. God rains down literally hellfire, brimstone, sulfur. Destroys the cities, killing everyone there. Of course, he brought out Lot and his two daughters. His wife did not make it. This is the judgment of God. In those moments, and many more in Genesis, we begin to see this picture formed of God, that he is holy, that he is righteous, that he is the perfect judge. He's not only in authority, but he brings the judgment when someone goes against that authority. But that's not the end, as I said. That would only be tragedy for us. God would, by the way, be completely justified in it only being judgment. You hear me? We've got to learn that. God would be completely justified if all he did was pour out wrath on us because of our, our insurrection, because of our sin, because of our mutiny against him. God would be perfectly justified and not in the least uh, tainted in his glory or his righteousness for only pouring wrath out on you and me and Adam and Eve and everyone in between. But we see that Genesis is not only a story of judgment, but it's also a story of grace. Grace. What is grace? Grace? Grace is giving a gift that is undeserved, unmerited, unearned. And from what we see in Genesis, we're forming what grace is by the way God is, is uh, doing it. Grace is actually ill-deserved. Meaning, not only do we not do anything to earn it, but we have done everything to earn the exact opposite. We deserve nothing but death, destruction, but God gives grace. He gives a gift to the people who deserve bad. He gives good things. We find out in, in Genesis that God is not only just, but he's merciful. We find out that God is not only righteous, but he is compassionate. That God is not only just with his judgments and, and unwavering, he is gracious even towards those who have sinned against us and there's a lot to work out there that today won't necessarily be the day, and we'll, we'll kind of get there of how God is just but also forgiving. But we don't have to go very far in the Bible to see God bestow grace upon those who deserve only judgment. We first see that in the fact that Adam and Eve were not immediately destroyed eternally. What I mean by destroyed eternally is uh, sinning against an eternal, infinite creator deserves eternal, infinite wrath. They should have immediately, or, or could have immediately received that, and God would have been entirely just. But what we see happen is, then Adam knew his wife Eve, and they bear a son, Cain, and they bear another son, Abel. Then Cain kills Abel, and God allows him to bear another son, Seth. God is, is, is like letting the story go on here. That's so interesting. How is God letting the story go on? How is he letting this happen? When they've sinned, how is he just? 
Well, the next thing that we see is that God gives them the promise of a coming Savior who will deal with Satan, who will deal with sin, who will deal with punishment and all that he stands for. Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, again, controlled by Satan, so God's basically saying to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He, that's an offspring of the woman. Do you see that? Enmity between your offspring and her offspring. He, this offspring. So there will be a child. There will be a, a, a human, a male human, he, who will come from the woman, her offspring. And, and, and Satan will bruise his heel. That is, Satan will strike him, try to destroy him as a serpent would strike you as you walk in a grassy path, strikes your heel. But, it says there, he shall bruise your head. And so the, the, the picture we're getting here is while, while the serpent tries to strike his heel, in the very same moment it's a crushing blow, a fatal blow uh, given by this he, this savior. Now ultimately in, in Genesis we don't know exactly what form that's going to take, but you and I know that there was a he Jesus of Nazareth, born of a woman, born of the Virgin Mary. And we know that, that from, from John, uh, that, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. So we have a he, that's the offspring of the woman, but this is also divine flesh. One who is not encumbered by the curse in the sense that he carries a sin nature. This is one who is also holy, righteous, and perfect because he is God while still being fully human. And we know that Satan will strike his heel. Who was it that, that, that put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ? Satan. You see, at one part that Satan puts it in his heart to do this, and another part it even says Satan possessed Judas. And this is interesting. Satan is the one uh, working to make this whole crucifixion of Jesus Christ happen. But we know, you and I know from God's word, that that was the striking of Jesus' heel. But Jesus was actually dealing the death blow of victory over Satan, sin, and death in that very same blow. And that kind of leads me to the next point I want to show you here uh, that, that happens in Genesis. We're kind of rewinding, but um, you know... Oh, I guess we're already in Genesis 3. Uh, we remember that, that people, Adam and Eve, recognized that they were naked. They, they now had this shame, this guilt. And so uh, Genesis 3, 7 says, uh, The eyes of both were opened, and they, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That is, they made coverings over their privates. Whatever, they made clothes all of a sudden, Adam and Eve couldn't bear to be uncovered because of their sin. They didn't want their sin to be seen because that meant judgment for their sin. And so they did the only thing they knew. They sewed fig leaves together and they made clothes for themselves. 
In fact, even uh, with those clothes, though, they still felt the need to hide, right? So Genesis 7, or sorry, 3-7, they make those fig leaves, but there in 8 and following, God comes on the scene, and they still hide. And what we learn from that is that that covering of fig leaves, this man-made, self-made covering, was not enough. But then we go to Genesis 3.21. This is just before God casts them out of the garden. So they're now going to go live under this curse. But we see grace. Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God made clothes for them. They had sewn these, these fig leaves together, but they still had to hide. They still were ashamed. But God makes clothes for them. So it's God-made rather than man-made clothes. And these skins aren't made out of fig leaves. They're made out of skins, animal skins. So what does it require in order to have animal clothing? Well, it requires a sacrifice. That's what it requires. An animal or animals, I don't know, had to die. An animal had to be sacrificed in order to be that God-made covering on Adam and Eve. And I hope you see the picture that is being formed for us, this precedent that is being set here in Genesis right at the beginning. We have corrupted perfection and judgment is coming, but God is gracious and God uh, gives this sacrificial covering, and it was pointing forward to the ultimate sacrificial covering. And this helps us make sense of the rest of the Bible, especially the rest of the Old Testament. I mean, even in the New Testament, the New Testament, again, would not make sense. But we see that, that after this, um, Abel is making a pleasing sacrifice to God. You remember that? He's making sacrifices. Well, what is that? Well, God is setting in motion this idea of, of doing these symbolic animal sacrifices that are pointing forward to the greater sacrifice. We see Noah and his family, when they get off the ark, they make sacrifices. We see Abraham go all over Canaan, sojourning, make, building altars and making sacrifices. We see the same with Isaac and with Jacob. When we come out of Genesis and come in, uh, into to Exodus and, and Leviticus and all these, God sets forth the Mosaic law. A main facet, a main aspect of the Mosaic law were the sacrifices that they had to make. God gives them a whole list of sacrifices. Oh, I actually missed the sacrifice uh, of the Exodus, right? The final plague. They must all kill a, a perfect lamb and put its blood on the lintel so that the, the angel would pass over killing the firstborn in that home. But for, for, for them, they, they had these sacrifices they had to do yearly weekly, daily, these sacrifices as symbolic coverings for their sin, pointing forward to Christ. Hebrews 10.1 says, The law, which, you know, commanded these sacrifices, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. It's but a shadow. It's, it's but a, a, a forcing. You know, someone's coming around a corner, and you just see their shadow coming. You know they're coming, but it's not the actual substance. That's what sacrifices were. They were but a shadow of what was to come. Hebrews 10, uh, again, the same chapter, 10, verses 12 through 14, it says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 
For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hebrews 9.26 says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And this is why, you know, when we come into the New Testament, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He recognized that that initial sacrifice of God to cover Adam and Eve and all the sacrifices in between were pointing to this Lamb of God, this He who would crush the head of the serpent and give Himself as a sacrificial covering for the sins of people. This is all things we find in Genesis pointing forward to the most important truths we could ever know. Our only hope, our only hope of salvation rather than wrath is in this sacrifice of this one that God would send to deal with Satan, sin, and death. We learn that in Genesis. But things are still crazy. <laughs> God gives this promise, and it's like, well, maybe everything will be okay. No, things are crazy. And that gives us our, our next point, number four, a story of chaos and providence. And I'll, I'll be quick on this point. I really will. But this is where we are. This is where we live. This is, this is our day in, day out experience. The book of Genesis shows us that though God is giving grace, though God is making amazing promises, it's still chaotic. It's still chaotic. I mean, think about the, the chaos we deal with in, in Genesis. Again, chapter 4, you have the first murder I guess chapter 3, you even have the first uh, husband and wife <laughs> dispute as Adam blames his wife. Then 4, you have murder and, and so on. You have enemies trying to hurt God's people. You have a handful of uh, so-called natural disasters. I don't like that term, by the way, because it's not nature. God is in control of nature, natural disaster. But you know what I mean when I say it. God put the flood on this earth, and then we see a handful, several, a three that I can think of for sure, uh, famines that happen. This is when the rain isn't coming, and all the crops are drying up, and so when all the crops are drying up, that means the animals don't have food, and if the, the crops are, are drying up, you don't have plant food, and if the animals are, are not surviving because they don't have plant food, then people aren't surviving. So we have these famines that come on in the book of Genesis and other natural so-called natural disasters and then even when you look at the people of God the people God has given his grace to the people he has chosen to bless within them you have drunkenness right Noah passes out drunk in his tent right after the flood uh or I mean I don't know exactly how long after but it's the next next thing that it lists there in Genesis you have drunkenness you have all sorts of sexual immorality, all sorts of sexual immorality uh, among the people that God has chosen to bless. You have family feuds, I mean, constantly, right? Ishmael and Isaac. Then you have Jacob and Esau. Then you have Joseph and his brothers. Constant family feuds. That's, that's all of the patriarchal family in the book of Genesis. And you have all sorts of trickery and dishonesty, which ultimately tells us that they don't trust God. They lack faith in God. We see impatience with God, right? 
Abraham and Sarah are, are annoyed when they don't have the child God has promised, and so they go outside of his plan. And anyways, we see impatience happen a handful of times. We see people trying to force God's hand. We even see, as is the case with Isaac, remember Isaac goes to bless Esau, even though he was told that Jacob was supposed to be the one blessed, and then Joseph's brothers are trying to keep the prophetic dreams from coming true. You remember that? They are actively working against the revealed will of God. That is chaos, my friends. You've got chaos outside. You've got chaos of people coming inside. You've got chaos right there in the people that God has chosen to bless. And so at first glance, that is, that's just all chaos. But if we look behind that chaos, we see providence over and over and over again. What appears at first to be chaos, what appears at first to be ruining God's plan, what appears at first to be a curse upon rather than a blessing for people sh is shown to be the providence of God. And providence is just a fancy way of saying God is in control of it all and God is working all of it for good for his people. God is in control of all of it. And I told you I'd be short on this one, so I will be. This is uh, epitomized, you could say, in Genesis 50, verse 20. And Joseph is going to say this to his brothers. We looked at it last week. But this is after Joseph has been sinned against grossly, after the world has been chaotically against him. He's been sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers. Joseph has been lied about and put into prison by his master's wife. He, had, he was uh, forgotten there in prison for years. And then, after there's a worldwide famine, natural disaster, Joseph says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. There is chaos in this world, even though God's grace is, is present. There is chaos in this world, but God's providence is always, always, always working. God is even using the curse for our ultimate good and his glory. This is the God that we see in Genesis. He's the creator. He creates everything perfect. And he gives grace where judgment, full judgment is deserved. And he brings beautiful things, providence out of chaos. And so my question for you today, after that, that review, I haven't done many application things, is, is basically, do you trust him? Do you trust this God that we see in these, these theological truths, these practical realities that are revealed to us in Genesis? Do you see him as the infinitely superior, purpose-giving, good authority over your life. Now that was ruined at the fall. I get it. But God is returning us to that. That's what it is to be a new creation in Christ Jesus. It's, it's, it's re-seeing him as infinitely superior. It's seeing him as giving us purpose, life, meaning. And it's seeing even his rules, his commands as good and worthy of being obeyed no matter what we think about it. Adam and Eve thought, ah, it's just a fruit on this tree. What's the big deal? Ah, it's just a little sexual immorality. Ah, it's just a little lie. It's just a little unforgiveness. It's just a little... No. 
as new creations, we see, we believe that even God's authority is good. It is best. We are not God. We are creation. He is the creator. Do you believe that? Are you living like that? My next question is, do you see this God as the sufficient Savior? You might try to sow fig leaves. You might try to do good deeds. You might... The fig leaves, by the way, was the man-made covering for sin. To, anyways, you might try to do good deeds. You might try to do good works. You might try to hide your sin. None of that will work. The only thing that will work will be the God-made sacrificial covering that we have now seen in the person of Christ Jesus. Do you see him as the sufficient Savior from the penalty of sin and to Union with God, ability to love one another, ability to serve God, worship God. We recognize, by the way, in Genesis that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In the same way, that's all we can do is believe God, that he sent his son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We believe in him and his salvation And do you see in this in-between time of chaos that you can trust him? That it's providence. You don't have to grow bitter at God when things don't go your way. You don't. Because we see in Genesis and through the rest of the Bible, God is working it for your good. It is for your good. You say, but no, it was sin against me though. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You say, but it was this natural disaster. Yeah, I brought the famine. I brought the flood. You can trust me. It's for your good. Do you believe God? Because if you, if, you, if you trust him on this, that he is providential even through the chaos, then you can be faithful. You can be thankful. You can be worshipful. You can continue to serve and love others instead of turning inside, closing off. If you believe that God has providence in the chaos. All these things, I believe, it's just so important that if we learn these themes, it will help us to read the Bible, and that's awesome, and that's so important. We all need to be digging in the Bible every day because it's where God speaks, it's where God revives our soul, it's where He grows our faith. But if we know these truths, it helps us to interact with the world. There's a creator. Everything that I see right now, this is not all that exists. There is a God who is dwelling here among us. He created us. He's infinitely superior. He gives us purpose, and he is our authority. Then we recognize this world is broken, but it's because of our sin, not God's fault. Then we recognize there is judgment, and it is coming. There will be another flood. It just won't won't be of water. That judgment will be no more full than that in the days of Noah, but God is gracious, and he will save those who believe in him as he providentially works that out believe today friends believe these things today let's pray together father god i thank you that we've only looked at the first book of the bible the first uh, at least chronologically the first place that you've spoken to us to let us know what's going on in this world and god we thank you that it is so packed with relevant truth for today even though these events happened thousands of years ago 
They mean everything for today, for the way that we think about you, God. Whether we esteem you, whether we are enthralled with you, whether we obey you. God, help us to learn these truths. Help us to live in light of these truths and help us to spread these truths to those who don't know them or have not yet believed in them. God, I thank you that we've gotten to study this wonderful book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. God, may this, for some of us, be a new beginning, that we trust in that Savior. And for others of us, it can just be a, a restart. If we've grown weary in doing good, if we've grown bitter at you, God, let this be a new beginning for us as well, Lord. God, we thank you for being gracious towards sinners. This I pray in your son's holy name. Amen.